Hi, and welcome to Renton Christian Center's Recorded Ministries. We hope you'll enjoy listening to this message as Pastor Alex leads us in God's Word. It is our hope that you'll personally experience God through these teachings. Now here's Pastor Alex. I was reading a, a book called The Reason for God about a pastor in New York City, one of the largest cities in the world, who has managed to attract literally thousands of 20-somethings from the several area universities to his church. And he's been discovering that Christianity becoming extinct and secularism on the rise is actually only half true. Because actually seculars are concerned that the Christians are taking over. You know, if you, if you uh, read anything or heard the news, it's kind of like everybody's freaking out because you know, some Christian politician is trying to put forth some godly principle and, oh, it's going to destroy the country. So the seculars have the same exact fear that their thinking is becoming extinct too. So this pastor has recognized, after talking to hundreds and thousands of college-educated students, that both are on the rise. Yes, secularism is taking over depending on who you read or who you listen to, though you would never realize that Christianity also is on the rise, both in this country and around the world. Christianity is exploding, as you know, in Africa, in South America, in some of the other third world countries, just on the rise, but even in America as well. He's having incredible success convincing through intelligent discussion as well as Bible scripture that there is a God and Jesus Christ indeed lived, died, and rose again. So we need to be encouraged. The thing is, you and I are, are often in conversations where we're told, or it's implied by others around us, that no, Christianity, it's fictitious. It's a legend. People just kind of invented this thing for all these various reasons, and, and there's really you know, no intelligent person on earth who would, would actually buy into it. So we have to have an answer as believers not only that the Bible is the Word of God because it says it is, because honestly, that's circular reasoning, which is true, but for those who don't regard the Bible as the Word of God, it's not helpful. However, it is helpful if we take an academic approach to providing evidence that there is a God and this book indeed is not a myth, it is not a legend, so that people have reasons to consider that this is the Word of God just to kind of get the wheels turning and the river flowing in that direction versus dismissing it outright. Am I making sense? It's best to have both, especially living in a culture that we live in, and it's not only so that other people who we know and love will believe in Christ, but to bolster our own faith because we're getting hammered every single day just like articles I read this morning to the point where it can wear you down, you begin to wonder and question. By the way, doubting is good. Doubting what God says, doubting his word, is healthy if you have a commitment to chase down your doubts to the finished conclusion because it will inevitably lead you to believe and understand God was right the whole time. And when uh, other skepticism comes in from the outside, having worked through those arguments yourself, you will not fall prey to them because you know that you know that you know. It wasn't just my inherited faith from my parents. This is my own. God and I have had this out and he won and I'm convinced. So, we still need to have healthy evidence for why we believe what we believe, not just for others, but for ourselves. So here's what I want to ask. I want to ask a question. How do we know the Bible isn't just a collection of fictional legends? 
That's my question today. How do we know for sure? People didn't just make this up for a variety of ulterior motives, and there are some very good academic research that's been done that says there are archaeological, scientific, and logical reasons to say it's everything but legend, mythology, or fiction. And that information is, is readily available on the internet, in books. People have been writing and speaking and, and doing seminars on this information for years and years. But unfortunately, a lot of Christians are getting away from that academic study as to what facts support the reality and the authenticity of Scripture. So let's take a look at some of those questions. Here's the first answer. How do we know the Bible isn't just a collection of fictional legends? Number one, the New Testament was written too soon to be fiction. It showed up way too quickly after the historical events to be made up. Here's what I mean by that. All four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, were written at the very most about 40 to 60 years after the death of Christ. Had Jesus lived, he would have been about uh, 70 to 90 years old. People were living to 70 and 90, at least the 30-year-olds, as well as, how about the kids, the 10-year-olds, who were present during the time of Christ. So they had now become adults within 40 to 60 years. Now think about this. That means that they were present during the events that are recorded about Jesus' birth, his life, his teaching, his death, the opposition, the persecution, and even his resurrection. And because those documents were not only written, but circulated throughout all these Christian communities around the Mediterranean, the living people, those who witnessed the events, were actually there to say, wait a minute, I was there, and that A, either never happened, or B, yes it did. Living witnesses are reading these very Gospels. You can't fool 100% of the people 100% of the time. And they couldn't all somehow collaborate and agree without having a single one of them step up and go, it's all fabricated, we just made that up. They happened, the events were recorded, the people that lived and experienced them were still alive when those letters were circulated. But before we go, let's take a look at what God says about his word first, because that's really the reason we believe. This is just ancillary evidence to support the very first part of Luke, chapter 1, verse 1, the first four verses, Luke is speaking, and he says, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were what? Eyewitnesses. Now that's a pretty strong statement. If you expect people to believe you, and you say there are, there, uh, the, there are people among us right now who are still alive, who are eyewitnesses. In fact, I went and talked to them. That's where I got my information. If that's not true, that would be pretty hard to fake. The second half of his opening statement says, with this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, who was probably the scribe who had become a believer that Luke was writing to and through, so that you may know the certainty of the things that you have been taught. So hundreds of people who were alive during the times of Christ and all the events surrounding it were still alive when Luke's letter was circulating, and they could have easily disputed anything they read. Those letters were circulating throughout all the churches. In fact, they'd all have to be dead for this to be a legend. Think about it. In order for, 
For Luke to have invented the story about Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, the only way that could have succeeded, especially in a way that grabbed the attention of the known world, every one of those eyewitnesses would have to be dead in order for him to be able to fake it. Make sense? The gospel was simply written too soon for it to be a legend. A couple of other fun points along the way. Mark 15, 21. That's Mark 15, 21 if you're taking notes. Just a simple side comment. Mark says, the man who helped Jesus carry his cross up to the Mount of Golgotha, his son's names were Alexander and Rufus. So let's say the man carrying the cross was a peer of Jesus's. That would make Alexander and Rufus, what? Younger. These guys were around. They're reading this letter too. I mean, those are very specific People you could go up to, Luke could have gone up. In fact, maybe that's how he got their names. Hey, I was there. I saw, we saw Dad. He carried the cross part way. That would be impossible to fake unless they no longer existed. Another example, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 6, where Paul says 500 people saw the risen Christ at the same time. They saw the risen Christ, resurrected Christ at the same time in one meeting. 500 people were gathered somewhere, probably a sermon being given by one of the apostles, and boom, there's Jesus in their midst. Now you can convince maybe 10 out of 500 people to tell a lie, or maybe 15 of them were on drugs and they had a hallucination. I mean, there's all kinds of possibilities, but how do you get 100% of 500 people to agree on one thing unless it actually happened? So when people say to you, or when you have your own doubts about, yeah, how do we know it's not just a legend? Well, there just wasn't enough time in between the events and the accounts written for this to become fiction. Make sense? Those accounts were written so closely to the actual time. How many of you were around uh, when President Kennedy was shot? Remember that? How many of you saw it on TV, or at least a recounting of it? Yeah. Was anyone there in person in Dallas? No. That happened about, what, 63, 65? Um, so that's 35 years. 50, that's about 50 years ago. Can you imagine if, if one of us decided to just rewrite that entire event, just totally make stuff up that wasn't even close? How well would that go over with the general public? It just would not fly. It's exactly what's happening here in the New Testament. There's just no way. Too many living people who say, I still have it etched in my mind. I will never forget the moment that occurred. Same thing is true with the New Testament. Praise God, we have documents that are not only spiritually reliable because they came from the mouth of God, but historically and archaeologically, they are absolutely reliable as well. All right, second question I'd like to ask is... um, or answer, how do we know it's not just a collection of fictional legends? Well, the content is too counterproductive to be legend. What the stories actually tell are absolutely opposite to what you would figure or think or imagine somebody would want to do to make this story believable. Before we go into the history, let's take a look at what God says about himself. This is Jesus having just performed a miracle, cast out a demon, Uh, is now walking down the road to the next town, and uh, his disciples are walking with him. And Jesus makes one of the greatest statements, most important statements about the character quality of his disciples. He said, here's what I'm looking for in leadership. 
How did that come about? Well, when they sat down at the new town, Jesus asked, what are you argue, where are you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because on the way they had argued about what? Who was the greatest? Okay, so that was their bent. They would have written some really juicy stuff about themselves because they all were trying to do that, you know, pecking order sort of thing and beat up the other guy and get on top. That was their hope. And sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. So that was the one of the primary emphases of Jesus. If you want to be a, a leader in the kingdom of God, you've got to become a servant of all. So he's kind of letting them know, look, if you want to get ahead in God's eyes, you've got to reverse the order, be a servant of all. So if that's the primary teaching, then how could it make sense that the Gospels were written because these guys all just completely dismissed that commandment and that principle and completely reverted back to arguing about who is greatest and start writing stories about how awesome they are. In fact, there's still strong beliefs today outside the Christian community who, who believe the gospel was written by church leaders like Peter and Paul and James and John to promote themselves, consolidate their power, and create a movement that would never end. There's this belief that all these guys were fabricating things, elevating themselves, trying to get everybody to believe and come together, one universal group, and we got this thing, and so we're just going to march forward in history, and we got everybody fooled. They're all following us, so we have stories about Jesus. We had an experience. You didn't. We're special. We have special insight. You don't. You need to gather around us. That's one of the very common secular beliefs outside the Christian community. But then you have to ask, wait a minute. When you read the Gospels, you don't see men propagating belief in themselves. You don't see guys or women elevating themselves, say, come, follow me, I'm great, smart, strong. You see just the opposite. The actual Gospel accounts are counterproductive. They're not even close to elevating the individuals. For instance, if this was true, why would Peter allow such damaging information to be written about him? You know, if, if I wanted to be like popular and powerful and believed in and so I wanted to lift up myself all the time, I would not tell people, you know, I denied Christ three times, by the way. Then I cursed him and then I ran in fear. That's not leadership material that people are going to go, ah, I'm in. The real Bible story says, no, these guys were living out what Jesus asked them to. Don't elevate yourself. Pride comes before a fall, but God exalts the humble. If that was true, why would Paul have been so candid about his horrendous behavior before Christ? When you read his account of what he was like before Jesus met him, this is not leadership material. This is scary. The guy was a murderer. He was a persecutor. He was chasing Christians, putting them in jail. That's not something that would build him up so that people would gather around and say, oh, great master Paul, you're an amazing leader. Not even close. If these were true, why in the book of Acts would Luke record that all 12 of the disciples, no, yeah, all 12 of the disciples and every other disciple as well that was close to Christ were shivering in cowardly fear in the upper room, afraid for their lives. This is not strong, follow me, Donald Trump kind of, sorry, you know, kind of a leadership methodology. It's just not. So that, that whole idea that these gospels were invented to promote themselves, to consolidate their power base, not even close. The content doesn't even allow for that. How many of you remember the Da Vinci Code? 
there was a movie out, there was a book written, and um, I certainly don't promote it as something educational. It's entertaining, but certainly not close to the truth. Dan Brown, the author of The Da Vinci Code, actually believes that this principle was in place not around the disciples' time, but around 325. In fact, in the story of the Da Vinci Code, he says that Emperor Constantine actually tried to use his power to consolidate the church around himself. It's true that in 325 he did declare over the whole Eastern Roman Empire that Christianity is the state religion. But he did that by brute force of law. And so the story goes, as the Defensi Code uh, is, uh, unfolds, that Constantine actually believed Jesus was human. But he invented the idea that he was divine. And he was so powerful and so convincing, he got everybody else to go, oh, he's God. Though in his own mind, he's thinking, no, he's not. That's the story of the Da Vinci Code. It's all a hoax. It's all kind of built up simply to consolidate power around himself. So you can see that, that lie is still being propagated. And a lot of people think, wow, the Da Vinci Code, that's really, whoo, that's close, man. That's good stuff, yeah. No, because it, it says Jesus was just a man this whole Christianity thing was propagated by one powerful emperor. See, the truth is, yeah, it did become a state religion, but it's not historically accurate that it was because of Constantine's great influence. Christianity exploded 250 years before Constantine ever arrived on the scene, all by itself. Did not need government intervention or help to get this thing to become a worldwide phenomenon. How and why? Simply by virtue of the story itself, the reality of the Holy Spirit, and the changed lives that resulted. That's how Christianity exploded. And I think Constantine just got on board way after the party started because he thought, wow, if I want to be popular, I should probably make Christianity a state religion. It's probably what he was actually doing. So the truth is the content of the Gospels is too counterproductive to be legend. Then I've got a third answer. I love this one because this is one of my favorite realities about, about the Bible, about the authenticity of the scriptures. We know it's not a legend because the ancient practice of manuscript copying was too precise to be fallible. Many of you haven't heard about the amount of detail, the blood and sweat and tears that went into making sure the manuscripts were copied from one generation to the next exactly, precisely. And one of the reasons for that is because a lot of the scribes took this verse very seriously. Where John says in Revelations 22, 18, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this scroll, if anyone adds anything to them, God will add to that person the plagues described in this scroll. Now, it's probable that John and Jesus were referring only to the book of Revelation. But a lot of the scribes took that very, very seriously, and they weren't going to mess with the possibility that he might have been referring to the entire Scripture. They took their jobs very seriously. The scribes, in ancient times, literally from about the 200s A.D., after the New Testament, and previous to that, in the Old Testament, all the way through to the, the last and latest manuscripts that were written, all basically went by the same principles. Their job was a full-time professional career that took years of training before they were allowed to be a part of the team that was copying manuscripts. A manuscript simply means it's done by hand. A manuscript is not done by a typewriter, machine, or computer. 
You see, the, the chances for error when you have a computer are very, very low because you just get exact copy. It's just, it's robotic. But you get humans involved, hmm, it's easy to get some things flip-flopped, miss a word, add a word, it's just easy. So their job was incredibly intense. And so usually in monasteries, there were monks who had given their lives, their lives as um, being single for life, and their job, literally in caves and cathedrals, was to do nothing for their entire life but copy text from one generation to another. And there was a particular group of, of Jewish followers who were monks in a monastery around 900 A.D. So 900 A.D. is over 1,000 years ago. And they had a, they had a, um, a practice when they were copying a manuscript what they would do, in fact, they, they would copy the entire book of Isaiah, okay, 61 chapters of Isaiah. And when they were finished with the entire text of the book of Isaiah, in the copied form, they would compare it to the original. And here's what they would do to make sure it was right. They would count the words in the original, every single, no, letters. They count every single letter in the entire manuscript of Isaiah in the original. Then they'd count the letters in the entire manuscript, and then they would say, which letter is in the center of this manuscript. And if they were different, they'd toss it and start over. I mean, that's, that's a commitment to accuracy. And this is not unusual. They were called the Masoretes. The Masoretic text, in fact, comes from this group in 900 AD. And so these guys were highly committed to getting things right. Now, there are more than 24,000 partial and complete manuscripts of just the New Testament. 24,000 whole New Testaments and fragments as well. There are more being found every year. In fact, uh, the latest one was found in Albania, 2008. So if you think about their commitment to precision, okay, these guys weren't up to just sort of poetic license when they were copying the Bible. They were really almost on the uh, you know, p possibility of death committed to getting it right. But nevertheless, they were human, and so there have been people, critics of the Bible, who have said, you know what? That manuscript is different from that one. I see mistakes. They were human. They still made human errors. In fact, it's been determined there's about 150,000 mistakes. When you take all the manuscripts that have been found, 24,000, put them all together, there's 150,000 errors. They're called variants. You'd kind of go, well, okay, that kind of blows that out of the water, then it's how can that be reliable? Here's the truth. When you look at all of those errors and those differences, they are so minuscule. 99% of them are absolutely meaningless. 1% actually have a possibility that it could change the details of a particular passage. But none of them change the meaning, the intent, or the doctrine, or the practice of Christianity. So when people say, oh, it's been translated so many times, and I hear there's all kinds of uh, what do you call conflicts in the manuscripts? You go, yeah, there are. But here's what they're like. So I, I find a great example. The conflicts that they're talking about that are so minuscule are kind of like this. This is just an, an English example of the kinds of errors that there are 150,000 of them that are like this. Let's say in manuscript one, you find it says, Jesus Christ is the Savior of the whole world. Whoops. Manuscript 2 says, no, Christ Jesus, they switched it, is the Savior of the whole world. D, well, there's two differences. Jesus and Christ are switched. The D appears. Third one, Jesus Christ, the Savior of the whole world. And four, Jesus Christ is the, 
Savior of the, whole, of the whole world. Those are the kind of errors we're talking about. That's it. When you understand the, 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 the silliness of the argument that you can't trust, the accuracy of the translations, it's that silly. Do you think, between the, you know, 80 or so of us here, we could uh, pretty much come up with what the original probably looked like? We don't have any of the original manuscripts of either Old or New Testament. The closest one is 117 years after it was written. That's the New Testament fragment of John's Gospel. Wouldn't you say we probably got this? It's pretty, pretty easy to say, you know, I can trust the copying of those manuscripts no matter how many people were involved, how many times they occurred. Here's a final beautiful part of of this whole search for biblical accuracy. This is an actual copy of the Dead Sea Scrolls. They were discovered in the caves of Qumran, which is on the northwestern shore of the Dead Sea in some cliffs, in some caves. And the, the caves had vessels, clay pots, that looked like this. These are actual vessels that they found the scrolls in. And it's, it's believed that the Essenes, which was another one of those monastic orders who were committed to copying scriptures, that was their life, ministry, and mission, had heard that the Romans were coming to invade and they were concerned about the loss of their manuscripts. So the, it's believed they climbed up into these caves, they stuffed these scrolls into these jars, they hid them away, and they, they weren't even found until 1956. But these weren't copied in 900 AD like the Masoretic text. It's believed somewhere between 200 BC, so there's a lot of Old Testament, and a few years after zero, the birth of Christ. That's the time period these scripts have been determined to have been written. The caves look like this. Uh, somehow you can get into them, because I, I, I see tourists there, but I'm not sure how they did it back in the day. But this is an actual geological location, so we know that these places exist, and those caves, like I said, can be visited today. They're pretty nice. I mean, they look kind of you know, scary from here, but they're actually decent places you could live and meet and, uh, and store things. So here's, here's my point. When those scrolls were discovered, the reason it was such a worldwide fascination, and by the way, we saw copies here in Seattle. They had a, a tour in one of the museums where we got to go and read the actual scripts and the manuscripts with the English interpretation, pure Bible, just exactly like you and I would read our Bibles today. It was just absolutely fascinating. But the reason it was so important is because these texts. In fact, they took Isaiah 53, the entire chapter, and compared it to the Masoretic texts, which were written 900 to 1100 years later, and there are 17 letters that are different between the two. Human error. Probably some more Jesus Christ is the Savior of the whole world sort of examples. So when the scientists, the archaeologists have proven factually Scripture has not changed over time. We don't have the originals, but the chances of it having been the same for, what, 2,000-some years probably guarantees it was the same for 2,000 years going the other direction. You and I have a great reason for confidence in standing on God's Word, mainly because He said so. The Holy Spirit bears witness in our heart. This is the voice of God the Creator speaking to you. When you read this book, it's God talking. But we also have now the evidence of archaeology, science, and every other serious scholar who's taken a look at this. 
One of the things I am thankful for is that we can stand with Jesus when he says, let's read this one out loud together. Ready? Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. That's the truth. One of the things we always want to be doing is staying in his word because it's life. It's truth. And when you and I are struggling or when we're wandering off the track, it's probably because we haven't been in the word and believing the word. That's why we always say, read your Bible, pray every day, and you'll grow, grow, grow. Right? It's the five-year-old Christian song. Let's, let's stand together and close in prayer. While you're doing that, you know, personal testimony is the most powerful, I think, way to help people begin believing. Coupling that with just a simple statement like, here's my story, and God said he so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, or any kind of Bible verse where you preface it with God says, if nothing else, it puts it in their mind that I think God speaks. And they're going to think about that, does he or doesn't he? And the Holy Spirit will have something to remind them of that over and over. Testimony and a simple Bible verse is all it takes to get the ball rolling. So Father, thank you so much for your word. We thank you, Lord God, that slowly but surely some humans are beginning to come around to recognize that you cannot be denied. You exist no matter who believes or who does not. And we thank you that you've given us a word that is complete, that is trustworthy, that is forever established in heaven and on earth. I thank you that not a single digit of your word will pass away. And I thank you, Lord God, that it not only is factually true, intellectually plausible, but Lord, it's life-changing. So help us, Father, to be people who just never grow tired of digging, listening, learning about what you've spoken and what you're still speaking to us today in Jesus' mighty name. And church said... Amen. Amen. Praise God. Well, may the Lord bless you. Look forward to seeing you next Sunday. Wow, that was an encouraging message. Please consider this open invitation to come and join us in worship and praise. The Lord's will is made clear in 1 John 1, 7. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. Thanks for listening. We appreciate you. Oh, and here's a final message from Pastor Kevin. Do you ever have thoughts about your purpose in life? Have you accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior? Or maybe you walked away and it's time to come home. You know, really our walk with God is about a personal relationship with Him. That's what He wants. I believe that's what we want. I encourage you to take a few moments and allow this message to sink in. Allow His Holy Spirit to speak to your heart. You know, the Bible says that if we draw close to Him, that He will draw close to us. So do that today. God bless.